I think there's a little doubt in any of our minds that America will never be the same again. Uh, I think Pearl Harbor was one of those events that that uh, was an epic event in our nation's history that we should not forget. <laughs> we should always be reminded. And as uh, World War II veterans slowly uh, step into eternity, it's kind of hard to to remember sometimes. Uh, I can remember talking to my 94-year-old grandmother about the Great Depression. And I know with her, left when she died this past year, left many stories, went, went, went with her, uh, that kept me on track at, at times. And so, But 9-11 was an event in our generation. That is an event that will never hopefully leave us, uh, will never uh, ever take us back to where we were, where we thought, that we were always safe. You know, the wars were always over there, over there, over there. You know, it was, it was never at home. It was always there. It was always in another land. It was always something that we felt pretty secure from. But it's not that way anymore. I think uh, we're told now when you go to sporting events, you're told now when you, you can see it everywhere, I mean, you go to the airports, that we're not in the same America pre-9-11 and that it has changed us. Because we realize our own vulnerability. We realize that we are very susceptible to attack, even within our own borders. That reality can become ever true as well as God begins to give you a vision. You might think that you are completely secure and safe within the framework of God's vision. Now, those that are on the outside, the Sanballats and Tobiases, as we talked about last week, obviously they're not in God's will, but you're in God's will. And everybody who's in your camp must be in agreement with you and, and supportive of you because this is, uh, this is, after all, this is God's plan, right? That everybody's going to be on board with this. We talked about Sanballat and Tobiah last week and just how they, how they really were a, were a thorn uh, from on the outside in, in, uh, to Nehemiah and the people and how they literally had to go to bed. They had to take showers. They had to build a wall with a sword in their hand and a brick in the other hand. It was that, that level of security, that level of threat from the outside. But what do you do from the threat when it comes from within? When you have issues from within the camp, within the church, within the company, within the team... When you have it within, you would, within the family, when you have it within the organization, when you have it within, it just takes on a totally different look. And whenever there's, you're fighting without, it's so hard to sometimes get back on because of the horse again. Because if you, if you think about Sam Bell and Tobiah and their constant nagging and their psychological warfare that, that was attacking them, I think about John Wayne, the great, the great, uh, the great, uh, Western uh, movie star, he said it like this, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. And I think whenever we go into the battles, whenever we take on a vision from God, again, it's, it's saddling up, it's getting back on the horse, even though we're tired and scared and, and, and riding ahead. But again, you don't ever expect Tonto to turn on Long Ranger. You don't ever expect those that are within to ever stab you in the back. If the mission is so clear and the passion is so real and it's so, and it's, this is of God, then how would you ever get off course? The problem is, is that Satan's, one of his greatest moves is to get us from, from the within, not necessarily from without. Because there's something that happens whenever we start getting attacked 
in God's direction and God's move and God's working in our life and we can start getting attacked from without. We kind of rally the troops. We kind of get in the, we, we, we circle the wagons and we kind of get in and we hunker down and we take up our swords and we're ready to fight through this. And it's, it's all for one and one for all. No soldier left behind. So it's kind of like you put down all your differences and you get in there and you fight. But there's a different effect whenever you have this, you have this external opposition and that there's one effect, but then when you have an internal opposition, there's a different effect. When you have the external opposition, it typically unites you. But when you have an external opposition, it typically, or excuse me, an internal opposition, it typically divides you. When externally you're being attacked, you, again, you rally the troops, the hive buzzes and protects the queen bee or, or whatever it is. But whenever it comes from within, when there's a virus within, when there's a problem within, when there's a bomb within, that's a different thing. Now all of a sudden churches split. All of a sudden teams divide. All of a sudden, egos step in. All of a sudden, everything begins to take on a a totally different look. And I just want to warn us. I want to warn you. I want to warn us all. That as God presses onto your heart a vision and a direction, and as you take bold, move steps forward in that vision and direction, don't believe that it's all going to be easy just because God's behind it. Because if Satan can do anything to stir up, to to cause division, and many times, again, that comes from that internal conflict, then he will do that. He will do just that. On the back of your worship guides today are some notes that you can follow along and and kind of keep, keep pace with. But also there's a statement at the bottom, just blank. It's there for you. I would like, we would like to know what God is laying on your heart. What is the vision, the direction that he is laying on your heart? Is it a political move? Is it a move for a run for an office? Is it a, is it, is it a change in the family dynamics? Is it, is it a change at school? Is it, is it, is it to lead the company here? The, the t- what, what is it that God's leading you? Is this to start up something? Is it to join with something? I don't know what it is, but what is it that God has been giving you a passion of something that could happen and something that should? And hopefully you can articulate that. If you, if you want to share it with us, you can keep it to yourself if you're ready to share it. Because I, as I shared earlier, there's a time to share it and there's a time not to share it. That's why I'm asking it in chapter 5. Because now you may be to that point that you're beginning to articulate that. Put it down. Write it out. Be able to, again, thoughts disentangle themselves when they move from your lips to your fingertips. So start writing it out. Start putting it on paper. And start expressing that. What is it that God is leading you to? And I'll just warn you again. Get ready for opposition. Jesus gives a stern warning about opposition when it comes from within because it will divide us and it will stop us. In Mark chapter 3, verse 25, he says, If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. It will not stand. It will not move forward. It cannot be there. A husband and wife internally fighting, guess what? It's not going to progress forward in the kingdom of God. Children bickering all the time, they're not going to have a peaceful home. They're not going to be able to rally whether it's a house or a team or a company or an organization or whatever it is that is divided, it won't make it. It won't make it. And what happens is somehow they get planted into the vision. But there are little bombs that can go off, little, little, little insertions into our life, into the vision, into the direction of God's leading in our life, 
that can literally implode and explode and destroy what God is about. In Nehemiah chapter 5 is where we'll be today, so be finding it in, 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 in your scriptures. And Nehemiah 5 is where Nehemiah is called on to stop some oppression that's going on. It's not oppression from without, it's their oppression from within. It's not persecution from without, it's issues that are within. Again, it's the internal bombs that are ticking, that are going off. What happened is, is there begin to be some subvisions, some different agendas than the main agenda. See, the main agenda was not even rebuilding the walls. I know I've made a lot about that. But the main agenda was reestablishing the nation of Israel. That was the ultimate goal of it all. And now the walls were, were obviously the, the tipping point in the, that, that, that sent Nehemiah going back and to rebuild the walls. That was very important. But ultimately it was that the name of God, the kingdom of God, the people of God would be reestablished in the promised land of God. They'd been in exile for over 100 years. And this was a, just a part of the process. But you never would expect, now you would think, after 140-something years of exile, you would never think, that so quickly there would be internal issues. But it happens. It happens subtly. It happens in a very conniving kind of way. But all of a sudden there's this internal opposition, this, this issue that, that, that bubbles up, this internal bomb. What do you do with it in your family when you have an elephant in the room? Do you deal with it? Do you talk about it? Do you ignore it? Do you sweep it under the rug? You think it's not, it's not worth the, the pain and the suffering of the argument that will, that will ensue? Or do you go in and you deal with it in a timely, grace-filled manner? Now, how many of you enjoy conflict? Raise your hand. All right. You enjoy getting in there and knocking it around and fighting it out, okay? I don't enjoy it. I like to run from it. But at the same time, I've realized over time that you cannot. It must be dealt with. What had happened in the people of Israel, and some people believe that, that it, actually chapter 5 was probably written after the walls were complete. We don't know that exactly, but there's a pretty good indication that because Nehemiah starts talking about something happening, that he's been governor of the land for 12 years. All right, it took 52 days to build the wall. All right, for 12 years now, he's referring back to the time that he's been the governor. So somehow in this period, this may be written post the walls, but what had happened is over a period of time where they once rallied around one another, they now began to turn on one another. Once had a rallying cry, now they had a battle cry. And the merchants of the, of the town or the wealthy in the town began to see an opportunity, an opportunity to make money. But not just make money, to literally put back into bondage the people of Israel. But not just strangers from a foreign land to put their own people back in to bondage. And so they begin to charge them interest rates. They begin to, to, to they, 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 they were opportunists, if you will. Where they, they begin to, to turn the tide. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and, and following, and, and we'll kind of get a picture of this. Because I, think, I want you to be asking the question, what do you do with internal bombs? When inside the church, inside the team, inside the company, inside the family, there are issues that need to be resolved. What do you do with them? Notice the issue that's going on here. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So this is not against Sanballat and Tobiah. 
This is not against the Ammonites. This is not against the Persians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. This is against your brothers, Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we can eat and, and keep alive. There, uh, there were also those who said, uh, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we, are bor- we, we have borrowed money for the king's taxes in the fields and the vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of, the, of our brothers. Our children is as the children, as, as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Let's just unpack that for a moment. Here here are opportunists, if you will. They see a crisis. They see that the nation of Israel is just in its very embryonic stage of rebuilding itself. And there's some of those who step in and capitalize on the weakness of the people. Oh, you need help with your, your, your grain and your food and your field? Here, I'll loan it to you. Oh, you need help paying the king's taxes? Here, let me help you. Just give me your daughter. All this begins to start happening, and and people begin. They couldn't own their fields. They, they, They weren't able to put food on the table. They weren't able to pay the king's taxes. It was just this major oppression that was going on. Opportunists happen everywhere. We still have them today. When Whitney Houston passed away this past week, it was interesting. Her great hits album went up $4 on iTunes. Now, all of a sudden, now again, whenever the record label was confronted about that, they said, oh, no, it was a mistaking in the coding, and it actually meant to be $4 more than that. And so what it is is that we see in our culture opportunities. And what these opportunities are, if you go back to the biblical times, opportunities are, are leveraging on top of the people, taking advantage of them in a very unhealthy manner. There was a, there was a famine. Notice that in verse 3. There was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. What are you going to do with a famine in the land? Do you help your brother out? Or do you loan it against their fields? But they literally started putting them in bondage. There was a financial bondage that was going on. In verse 3, it talks uh, talks about how they had to mortgage their fields and how there was a famine in the land. And in verse 4, there were the king's taxes on the fields and the vineyards. And then they were putting their children in verse uh, Uh, Verse 5, they were putting their children as slaves. So you have this level of bondage, and it's not coming from Sanballat, Persia, or anybody else. Who's it coming from? It's coming from within. And now people have lost the joy, have lost the excitement, have lost the focus on rebuilding the people of God. Now, I don't know what it is, if it's manipulation, if it's abuse, if it's it's, uh, what it is in your life that may hamper your vision in the direction that God is leading you. But just beware of internal bombs. It may not be as severe as putting your children into slavery, okay? I realize that. And it may not be as as severe as famine and whether or not you're going to have food for your family. But what is it in your God-given vision that is literally internally about to cause it to implode? Be aware of that. Because they, they will be there, no doubt. What do you do? I think there are five steps that we can take to defusing an internal bomb. All right? 
One is respond passionately. Respond passionately. When there's injustice, respond appropriately. There was injustice going on. Notice what he says in verse 6. For the, this is Nehemiah's response in verse 6. I was very angry when I heard the outcry of these, uh, 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 of these words. Nehemiah, he didn't just sit back and just let this, oh, man, this is horrible, or, hey, these are some great opportunists out there. These are some great capitalists out there. They're really making some good money. I need to go get my hand in the pie. They saw an injustice, and he was very angry at this injustice. He was not milk toast. He, was not, he didn't have a backbone of a wet noodle. He was, exa- he was exasperated. He was hot under the collar. And the problem is, and I think Edmund Burke said it so well, he says, all it takes for evil to triumph over good is for good men to do nothing. When there's evil out there, when there's injustice out there, when there's something not right out there, and something could be done and should be done, and yet we just sit back and do nothing. That's as evil as anything. We need to see that God is calling us to something greater. What is He calling you to? Now, can you be angry like this? I mean, because Nehemiah, he's very angry. He heard their outcries. He was hot under the collar. Can you be very angry? Is it okay? I love this verse. It kind of gives me some assurance that it's okay. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he says, be angry and sin not. There is, there is legitimate anger. There is justifiable anger. There is right anger. Now, I want to give you a test here just to kind of test whether or not this is justifiable anger or not. So kind of do your own personal test. Uh, if you go to the restaurant and they mess up your order again, is that justifiable anger? And you get upset with them on that. Is that justifiable anger? Or you didn't get the raise that you thought you deserved. Is that justifiable? When you don't get the recognition or the fame or the raise that you thought. Or my spouse doesn't support my decisions. Is that justified or is that unjustified? You're angry with that. These are just random questions. Some that you can write your own. My friend isn't interested in me like he once was or she once was. Is that justifiable or not justifiable? The organization doesn't appreciate me like it should. These are the things that many times get under our skin the most. Somebody cuts me off in traffic. Justifiable, unjustifiable. There's lots of things out there that make us angry. Now here's the question for you. Is the anger that you're feeling, is the emotion that you're feeling, is it justified? Is it right? Or is it just for yourself? Because you didn't get what you wanted. Henry Nouwen said, what else is anger than an impulsive response to the experience being deprived? It's a pretty good definition of what anger is. That, that, that what is it? Unless it is that. See, justified anger is whenever it is other-centered or God-centered. When this is not right to do this to the children. When this is not right to do this to people. Because evil is in the, is in the, is in the room. Because this is ungodly. That's when we're talking about justifiable anger. When your when your Belgian waffle doesn't come warm is not justifiable anger. All right. When when you get cut off at, at, on the interstate, that's not justifiable anger. What we have to do is assess where is our anger coming from. Deep down, Nehemiah was angry. He said, "I heard their cry. I heard." Their cry. Underscore that in your scriptures. 
I heard their cry. I heard their voices. They cried out. Who, whose voice are you hearing? Is it a hurting person? Is it a lonely person? Whose cry are you hearing and responding to? It broke his heart. In chapter 5, it broke his heart. In chapter, excuse me, chapter 1, it broke his heart. In chapter, chapter 5, it made him very angry. And once he heard their cry because they needed something, they needed a wall, they needed, they needed security, there was oppression in the land. He heard their cry and he responded in chapter 1. He responded. In chapter 5, he hears their cry again. This time it's in anger. Again, it was other-centered. How is it that it is not right, the injustice that is going on? Martin Luther said it like, or it was said of Martin Luther, he never did anything well until his wrath was excited, and then he could do anything well. He never could do anything well. I hope that there's a, there's a cry of our hearts whenever we see injustice in northwest Arkansas, when we see abuse in families. I hope there's, a, there's something that bothers us deeply about that. Mental, sexual, physical. I hope there's something that disturbs us and that we are willing to step up and do something. I hope when we see unchurched people, there's something in us that just just, just stirs an emotion up. That that's not right. Are we going to be a church for the unchurched or is that just going to be a banner that we're going to tout? Are we going to really reach the... Ask yourself those questions. Is there injustice in our, in our communities? And how can I be a part of that? But number two, I think you've got to take time to reflect. You've got to take time to reflect on the situation before acting, all right? Before acting. I, I look, notice this just in process here. Verse 6, I was very angry. I heard their cry. And then what does he do? I took counsel with myself. I, I, I. I heard, I was, I was very angry. I heard their cry. And then he says, I took counsel with with myself. Thomas Jefferson believed that when he got angry, he would count to 10. When he got very angry, he would count to 100. Mark Twain, when he got angry, he said, I count to four. When I get very angry, I swear. So I don't know what it is you do when you get very angry, but Nehemiah is very angry. What Nehemiah does, though, I think, if you miss this little phrase right here, it will be the difference of whether or not you are reacting or you're responding. Reacting or responding. Whenever tension, whenever bombs, whenever issues are, are, are presented to you, do you react? Do you quickly respond? get into the face, get into the issue? Or do you take counsel with yourself? He was the governor. Why couldn't he have just lopped off some heads? Why couldn't he have just enforced the law? He could have done it. He's the governor. No, he took counsel with himself. Literally, in the, uh, it means to, to contend, excuse me, literally, it means that my heart took counsel in, inside itself. I stopped, I reflected, I thought long, deep, and hard before I went out. And I did what I did. James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, it says, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about righteous life. But God desires.
Proverbs 15:28. The heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. Proverbs 29, verse 20. Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Ask yourself, do you take time? Do you breathe deep? Do you count to ten? Do you count to a hundred? What do you do? Do you take counsel within your heart? Do you start pulling away the layers and saying, okay, this is right, this is not right. There's a kernel of truth here. I need to... What do you do? Step back, breathe deep, take time to reflect. Number three, rebuke the person in the issue. Now, I don't like conflict. I don't like issues. And especially if my, if my blood gets boiling. In fact, I will be more apt to react than to respond. But what will we do, if we'll take the time and take counsel inside ourselves, as Nehemiah did, then we can appropriately stand up and deal with the issues. It doesn't mean you don't deal with the issues just because you take counsel inside your heart. It doesn't mean that you ignore them and wipe them away and go on. We still deal with the issues. There's an injustice. There's famine, and they're, they're taking advantage of that. The king's taxes, and they're taking advantage of that. They're enslaving their own people. This is not right. So he's angry. He sits down. He reflects. And then it says, I charge the officials. I charge the nobles and the officials. There is a process that we need to go through. There's a timing that we need to go through. There's approaching somebody with the right time, the right attitude, with the right, and the right person. You know, it's being able to do that in order shows tremendous amounts of self-control. But what do we do with our children? What do we do with our spouse? What do we do with those who are under us? We typically give them less grace than anyone else. When what we need to do is we need to take time and take counsel within ourselves and then deal with the issue. What's the issue? Nehemiah deals with the issue. He defines it. Number one, here, when, you, when you're talking about something, this conflict resolution 101, all right, define the issue with clarity, all right? You come home late all the time. It's robbing us of our family time. If that's yours, make it clear. In fact, I would say all the time, all right? I would take out that. You come home, honey, and when you come home late, it robs us of the family time. And I have a vision that we're going to have an amazing family gathering at the table every night. I don't know. Fill in the blank of what it is that God's given you. But whenever you have these internal bombs, define it with great clarity. Look at verse 7 and following. So he charges the nobles and the officials, and he said this. He says, you are exacting interest, each from his brother's. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you, are even, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Notice their response. They were silent and could not find a word to say. They were caught. It was not right. We, we had our brothers that were enslaved, and now they're back, and now you're selling them back into slavery? This isn't right. He clearly defines the problem because, because it's not right. It's, it's an injustice that's going on. He also directs them to God. Verse 9. In verse 9 it says, So I said, since they didn't say anything, So I said, 
The things that you are doing is not good. Ought you to not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Listen, ought there not to be a God consciousness about what you're doing? When you're dealing with people, it is okay in the right attitude, at the right time, in the right person, in the right place, to say, listen, this isn't honoring God. This isn't right. Let's, let's get back on course. This is what God's called us to. Direct them to God. Number four, number, excuse me, number, number two, number three. Number three is to repent and restore and reconcile. Repent, restore, and reconcile. And what you see with these people is they did just that. Verse 10 says, Moreover, my brothers and my servants are lending uh, their money uh, and, and grain and let them abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them the very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentages of, of the grains and the wines and the oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore. See, in conflict resolution, and Lori and I are professionals at this, all right? Let me just assure you. Because when we, we, we were, we've been married for 21 years, I believe, and I would say 18 of those have been wonderful years. Now, the others, not so good. Uh, and, and, and most of that was on the front end, all right? And it was when we were learning the different personalities that we had and the different agendas and the different ways of, of communicating. And it was pretty tumultuous. But we've learned this. If we can approach this with great clarity, all right, not emotions flowing out, but clarity. This isn't good. This bothers me. This, this does this to me when you do that, okay? Fill in the blanks, all those little blanks that are in there. I've been praying about this. This is what God's laid on my heart. We need to kind of go in this direction. Again, you're bringing God into the equation. There's an amazing, I'm not saying all things are just sort of smoothed over and, and everything, but when there's been injustice and I've been doing something wrong or she's been doing something wrong and we bring it out, we're typically very quick to repent, to restore, and reconcile. And it's not just repent and go on. It's not repent, but you did this. It's, it is humbly bringing myself and saying, this isn't right. I need to make it right. And, and, I, and I love it in the fact that, that they restored back to them everything that the people had lost. Everything that they had lost, they restored it back to them. You think about Zacchaeus, the wee little man and the wee little man was he? What, what did he do? Climbed up in a sycamore tree. Jesus went to his house that day. He becomes a believer that night. Da, 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 da. He says, "What I, I'm going to restore. He was the chief tax collector. I mean, that was like evil of evils, all right? He said, I'm going to restore fourfold. Restore fourfold what I've wronged. Whenever true reconciliation happens, there's, there is restoring. There is repenting that happens with it. Renew, number four, renew the respect relationship with God. All right, we, we, they, they brought them back to God. They brought them back to their relationship. But Nehemiah goes on and he, he talks about, listen, in verse 13, and I shook out their fold of their garment and said, 
So may God shake out every man from his house and from the labor that he has done. If he does not keep his promise, so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen to that, Nehemiah. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. See, bringing the relationship of God back into this is so important. Because we are not just me as an individual in this world. I'm in relationship with lots of people on the job, in the home, in the neighborhood, on the teams, or whatever it is. I'm, there's relationships all around. I have to make sure and I have to realize that I bring God, I bring my relationship with God into every one of those. Therefore, I must make sure that I am representing God in every one of those relationships. There needs needs to be that level of awareness. Even if I have a business whatever relationship with somebody who is not a follower of Christ, I am still a follower of Christ. Nehemiah brings them back to the fact that, hey, listen, God is going to hold you accountable for how you treat others. We need to realize we are held accountable before God. Even even Jesus said the only sermon recorded in the New Testament of his, he said, if you go to the altar and you realize that your brother has something against you, it's not even that you have something against your brother, but your brother has something against you, you need to leave your offering. Stop worshiping. Stop serving. Go and be reconciled. Then come back and give your offering. See, see, relationships and our relationship with God are so intertwined that if our relationship with, with others is sick, our relationship with God is not well either. So my question to you and to all of us today, is there a relationship that you have that is not well? And how is that affecting your relationship with God? What do you need to do all in your power to be at peace with that person? Nehemiah was bringing the people of Israel back. He was saying, listen, we got off course here. Over the past 12 years, I don't know what happened. We got off course. We were were going in a very clear kingdom-minded direction, but somehow we got into this profiteering direction. We need to get back on course. He calls them on it. He brings it back. But I love the way he ends the chapter. Because I think it's the way that if we're going to be the leaders that we need for the visions that God has called us to, then I think we need to to embrace Nehemiah's approach here. He reinforces what servant leadership looks like by his own example. just, just, Just by his own example. He reinforces your commitment to the vision by your example. So whatever God's called you to, again, you go through Nehemiah and you come to the last part in chapter chapter 5, verse 14 to the, to the end of the chapter, and you have this beautiful story of Nehemiah talking about how I've been governor for 12 years. But for 12 years, again, remember how the, how the, how the, how the chapter start? They had these opportunistic people out there trying to, make a, trying to make a buck on top of a buck on top of a buck, enslaving their own people. Not just having a free market economy, literally enslaving their people while they're in famine, while they're under the taxes of the king. Just taking total advantage of them. It wasn't just having a profitable business. And all of a sudden, what does Nehemiah do? He says, listen, you want to show what, what, what really a peaceful movement of God looks like? He turns it around. He says, for 12 years, 
I've been able as, a, as, as your governor to take from you. It was my duty. I had the right to, 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 get, to get cattle from you, to get food from you. Verse 16. Um, verse 16. But what did he do? I also persevered in the work on, the, on this wall. And we, and, and we acquired no land. And my servants gathered for their work. Go back, up to, go, go back up to verse 14 before we read that. Verse 14, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to the governor, the king, uh, uh, to the land of Judah, the 20th year of, uh, to, the, to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me uh, laid heavy burdens on the people and, and took from them, uh, from the daily ration, 40 shekels of silver, and we lorded it over them. Listen, what, what Nehemiah so, shows us is a servant leadership. What I did was I stayed busy about building the wall. See, as a leader, you're going to have to come to the realization of there is could versus should. There is rights versus responsibilities. And just because you can get something doesn't mean you should. Just because you have the right doesn't mean it's your responsibility. Real servant leaders serve by example. And Nehemiah was being example back at the people. The servant leaders lead by modeling, not by manipulating. Servant leaders earn respect. Others demand respect. It's caught up in their titles. It's caught up in their, their whatever. Servant leaders look out for people. Others look out for their positions. Nehemiah was a person who was centered on the vision, centered on the people, centered on rebuilding. Now you take Adolf Hitler. I don't care if you don't like him. And I don't like him. I don't care. He was a leader, wasn't he? He was able to rally a nation, wasn't he? Whether you like him or not, he was able to do it. He lived up in the Bavarian Alps in this beautiful eagle's nest um, resort area. And just below him, down in Dachau, is, is where people were dying. Jewish people were dying in gas chambers. I mean, it was, I remember going to Germany one time and seeing the, the dichotomy of that. And yet he had this major wielding influence over the nation. He was a leader. But then you have Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was just the opposite. He did not wield power. He did not wield a sword. He was an example. He was a servant leader. When you look at the people of Nehemiah's day, and you look at the, what they were doing, they were not leading by example. They were leading by force and by power and by position. I hope today, if you can learn from anybody's leadership, you'll learn from Nehemiah. You'll learn from Jesus Christ. And you'll ask yourself, what kind of leadership model am I following? Who am I? Who am I today? And let me just say this as I, as I wrap up the message, and we're not going to have a a song response time today because I want to I think I want to take this time as a church and I want us to update you on where we're going as a church here we are we're about vision we're about envision we're about tomorrow we're about where we're going tomorrow and I, I can tell you right now we've got a church of servant leaders people who don't fall in the Hitler 
frame of mind, they fall into the Nehemiah picture where they are giving time and attention and they're giving a lot of detail to, to our future. But let me just say this as we, as we talk about this because this, uh, this is something that is about your future and my future. It's about your kids and my kids. It's, it's something that we're moving towards. And just as 10 years ago when we started, we had a vision for something. Here we are today. So we're not done. God's not done with us. He's moving us into the next decade and into the future beyond that. And we've got a great team. About 40 different people have been giving input into our, our, our envision. And I want David to come and kind of, he's our team leader for the lead design and execution team. I want you to come and kind of give us the latest on where we're at with, uh, with Envision and the building. I will. Hey, everybody. Um, I spoke a couple of months ago just to try to update everybody on where we were at with the building and things like that. And I just haven't, I don't know if everybody noticed, but in between then and now, this is paid for. This building is paid for. Now, that's, that's exciting to me, to know how finance and things like that work is not my strong suit. But looking at what, what, how long it could have taken us to pay for that and how long it did, I just think our trustees, um, they're just good folks. They just paid attention, and they did a really good job. So I don't want to overlook the job that they've done. Uh, through your giving and your ties. Uh, also, just an update, um, we have submitted everything to the Bentonville Planning Commission, and they approved it. So we are looking good so far. They made some really good comments about uh, the aesthetics of the building, which we had a little concern about uh, enough brick and things like that being done, but they really liked uh, the layout. So kind of a shout-out to Pope Stanley Wilcox, uh, architects for that. They, they did a great job. Um, with all that being said, uh, I talked to Flinko, and they said that the site work uh, bids, they're going out, so they should be received this week, hopefully, and they should begin to really tear up stuff beginning in um, toward the end of March. They wouldn't give me a date. I was really kind of hoping for a particular date, but he was afraid to do that. He said, you might even want to pad a couple of weeks on that, but he said the end of March, they should be, they should be cranking it up. Uh, Speaking of uh, them doing a groundbreaking, in uh, March 11th, we are going to have a special service, each service, we're going to have a special time where you can go in as bi-life groups or as families and go break ground yourself. We'll have uh, more details coming. Michael will give you more details about that. But that's going to be a special Sunday, so you want to try to be here March 11th. And that's going to be a, a good time for all that. And during all this, though, I, I really want to make sure that we we look at it as what it is. It's just a building, okay? That's not the end result of what we're doing. That's not where your money, the end result, is being spent. And to kind of kind of let you know, we um, our last meeting we had, we met with uh, architects and, and, and everybody. And at that time, we found out that one of the guys, one of the architects, was having a kidney transplant. We didn't know that. I mean, I, I had no clue. He looked extremely healthy to me, so I didn't understand that at all. But when he said that, our first response was to pray for him. Now, to me, that's doing what we're supposed to be doing. The building is just a building. That's not 
the end result. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to reach people. And the building is just a way to get there. It's just another way to do that. When you go see this building, I'm sure you're going to walk in and go, well, I would have done that different, or I would have done this different, or I would have done that. Just understand it's where God's going to send people that we can reach out to and spread the gospel. Once we lose sight of that, we're in the wrong business. So we are blessed. You guys are giving, and, it, and it's just an exciting time for me. Thanks, David. And let me just piggyback on what David said about, uh, about um, the, the plans and, and on, I guess it's March 11th, uh, that, that Sunday. That is also Time Change Sunday, all right? So just be aware of that. But uh, that, that day is whenever we will, as a families, we want to send you out. As, as Body Life groups send you out at the end of our service, we'll have more on that. But we just want to emphasize you taking your children out with a spade in hand. We'll have them all out there. Uh, and digging up in the dirt, all right? Your kids will love it, all right? And, uh, and so you get to dig in the dirt. Your kids get to dig in the dirt. This is a special time for you all. It's not some elite group of people because as we're sitting here talking about vision, one of the visions I believe for your family is that your children would grow up, know the Lord, serve the Lord, be mature in the Lord. And again, you, you'd be able to invite your friends to a church that would care about them and love them. This is about creating space for them. This is about creating environments for them. This is about that. And so thank you, David, for sharing and all the time that you're giving and others are giving uh, to this. Let me just pray right now for our church, pray for you and where you're at. If you feel led to leave, let us know your vision and get where God's leading you. Tear that off, drop that in the offering basket. And let me just pray and ask God's blessings at this time. God, we thank you for these moments. And Lord, there are many, many, many directional visions, workings, stirrings, movings in people's individual lives, in their family, in the, in the, in the community, Lord, and even in our church body here. And we just pray that, Lord, as we give, as we think, as we, as we pray, as we plan, that, Lord, it is not about buildings, it's about people. And, Lord, it's about us being servant leaders to model the role of a Jesus and a Nehemiah. Lord, help us to be that kind of a leader in our organizations, in our families, that will lead by example. So, Lord, help us to even set an example today in our giving. Help us to set an example with our families, Lord, of what it means to be committed to you. We ask your richest blessings on our time and our giving right now. In Jesus' name.